0: Chapter Forty Five of Somehow Good. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter Forty Five. Of Conrad Vericker's revision of Paradise and of Fenix High Fever, of an English officer who wavered at Bombay, and of Fenix's surprise bath in the British Channel, why he did not sink the Ellen Jane of St. Sennans. Only Sally is in the water still. More boats. Found. Fenwick, haunted by the phantoms of his own past, always, as his fever grew, assuming more and more the force of realities, but convinced of their ephemeral nature, and that the crisis of this fever would pass and leave him free, had walked quickly along the seafront towards the cliff pathway. Had Dr. Conrad seen him as he passed below his window and looked up at it, he would probably have suspected something and followed him, and then the events of this story would have travelled a different road. But Vereker, possessed by quite another sort of delirium, had risen even earlier, almost with the dawn, and taking Sally's inaccessibility at that unearthly hour for granted, had gone for a long walk over what was now to him a land of enchantment the same ground he and Sally had passed over the previous evening. He and his mother would be on their way to London in a few hours, and he would like to see the landmarks that were to be a precious memory for all time, yet once more, while he had the chance. Who could say that he would ever visit St. Sennan's again? If Fenwick, in choosing this direction first, had a half-formed idea of attracting the doctor's attention the appearance of Mrs. Igledon's shuttered parlour-window would have discouraged him. It told a tale of a household still asleep, and quite truly as far as she herself was concerned. For Dr. Conrad, as might have been expected, was very late in coming home the night before, and his mother's peculiarity of not being able to sleep if kept up till eleven, combined with the need of a statement of her position, a declaration of policy, and almost a budget, if not quite, on the subject of her son's future housekeeping, Having resulted in what threatened to become an all-night sitting, the good woman's dozes and repentances, with jerks, on the stairs overnight, had produced their consequences in the morning. Fenwick passed the house, and walked on as far as where the path rose to the cliffs, then turned back, and, pausing a moment, as we have seen, under Sally's window, failed in his dreamy state to see her, as she looked over the cross-bar at him, and then went on towards the old town it may be she was not very visible the double glasses of an open sash window are almost equal to opacity but even with that the extreme aberration of fenwick's mind at the moment is the only way to account for his not seeing her in fact his mental perturbation came and went by gusts as his memory caught at or relinquished agitating points of reminiscence always dwelling on that parting from rosalind at umbala his brain and nervous system were in a state that involved a climax and reaction, and unhappily this climax, during which his identification of his present self with his memory of its past was intensified to the point of absolute hallucination, came at an inopportune moment. If he could only have kept the phantoms of his imagination at bay until he met Sally. But really, speculation on so strange a frame of mind is useless. We can only accept the facts as they stand he had no recollection afterward of what followed when he passed the house and failed to see sally or hear her call out to him for the time being he was back in his life of twenty years ago those who find this hard to believe may see no way of accounting for what came about but by ascribing to fenwick an intention of suicide for our part we believe him to have been absolutely incapable of such an act from a selfish impulse, and moreover it is absurd to impute to him such a motive at this time, however strongly he might have been impelled towards it by discovering the injustice and cruelty of his own unforgiveness towards his young wife at some previous time, as, for instance, in America, when she herself was beyond his reach, and a recantation of his error impossible. Unless we accept his conduct as a result of a momentary dementia produced by overstrain, it must remain inexplicable. It appeared to him, so far as he was afterwards able to define or record it, that he was no longer walking on the familiar track between the few lodging-houses that made up the old St. Sennans and the still older fishing-quarter near the jetty, but that he was again on his way from Lahore to Karachi, from which he was to embark for a new land. Where his broken heart might do its best to heal. For if ever a man was utterly broken-hearted, it was he when he came away from Lahore, after his futile attempt to procure a divorce. He no longer saw the cold northern sea under its great blue-cloud curtain that had shrouded the coming day, nor the line of fishing-smacks beached high and dry, and their owners' dwellings near at hand, a little town of tar and timber, in behind the stowage huts of nets and tackle, nor the white scarpment of the cliffs beyond, that the sea had worked so many centuries to plunder from the rounded pastures of the sheep above. He no longer heard the music of the waves on the shingle, nor the cry of the sea bird that swept over them, nor the tinkle of the sheep bell the wind knows how to carry so far in the stillness of the morning, nor the voices of the fisher-children playing in the boats that one day might bear them to their death. His mind was far away in the Indian heat, parched and suffocated on the long railway journey from Lahore to Karachi, scarcely better when he had reached his first boat that was to take him to Bombay, to embark again a day or two later for Australia. How little he had forgotten of the short but tedious delay in that chaotic emporium of all things European and Asiatic, that many-coloured meeting-ground of a thousand nationalities! How little! that the whole should come back to him now and fill his brain with its reality till the living present grew dim and vanished reviving now and again as fiction read in early years revives with a suggested doubt is it true or false he sat again on the esplanade at bombay as the sun vanished in a flood of rosy gold and released the world from its heat he felt again the relief of the evening wind heard again the chat of a group of english officers who sipped sherry cobblers at a table a few paces off i always change my mind said one of them backwards and forwards till the last minute then i make it the last one he quite understood this man's speech and thought how like himself for from the time he left lahore he too had gone backwards and forwards now resolving to return come what might now telling himself firmly there was no remedy but in distance, apart, and all there might be of oblivion. Was there not yet time? He could still go back, even now. But, no, the old obduracy was on him. Rosy had deceived him. Then he seemed to have come again to his last minute. Once he was fairly on the ship that was even now coaling for her voyage, once the screw was on the move and the shore lights vanishing— the die would be cast. The stars that he and Rosie had seen in that cool English garden that night he met her first would vanish, too, and a world would be between them. Still the hour had not come. It was not too late yet. But still the inveterate thought came back. She had deceived him. So his delirium ended, as its prototype of over twenty years ago had ended. He hardened his heart thrust aside all thought of forgiveness and repentance, and went resolutely down to the quay, as he thought, to embark on the little boat for the ship, and so practically put all thought of hesitation and return out of his mind. This moment was probably what would have been the crisis of his fever, and it was an evil hour for him, in which the builder of the pier at St. Sennans made it so like the platform of that experience of long ago. But the boat that he saw before him, as he stepped unhesitatingly over its edge—was only the image of a distempered brain, and in an instant he was struggling with the cold, dark water. A sudden shock of chill, an intolerable choking agony of breath involuntarily held, an instantaneous dissipation of his dream, the natural result of the shock, and Fenwick knew himself for what he was and fought the cruel water in his despair. Even so, a drowning man fights. Who, in old failures to learn swimming, has just mastered its barest rudiments. A vivid pageant rushed across his mind of all the consequences of what seemed to him now his inevitable death. Clearest of all, a sad vision of Sally and Rosalind returning to their home, alone, the black dresses and the silence. He found voice for one long cry for help, without a hope that it could be heard, or that help could be at hand but he was neither unseen nor unheard as you will know if we have not failed in showing the succession of events sally never hesitated an instant as she caught sight of the delirious man's involuntary plunge into the green waves that held no terrors for her she threw off as she ran fast fast down the wooden stairway the only clothes she could get rid of her hat and light summer cloak and went straight with a well-calculated dive, to follow him and catch him as he rose. If only she did not miss him. Let her once pinion his arms from behind, and she would get him ashore, even if no help came. Why, there was no sea to speak of! The man Jacob Tracy, the father of Benjamin, saw something to quicken his speed as he walked along the pier to help in the discovery of the life-belt, why did the swimming young lady from Lobjoits want to be rid of her wrap-up at that rate, as she turned so sharp round to run down the ladder? He increased a brisk walk to a run, as the lad, who had followed the young lady down the steps, came running up again, for there was hysterical terror in his voice. He was a mere boy, as he shouted something that became, as distance lessened, In the water! In the water! In the water! In the water! and he was waving something in his hand a lady's hat surely for with an instinct of swift presence of mind a quality that is the breath of life to all that go down to the sea in ships mariners or fisher-folk he had seen that the headgear sally threw away would tell its tale quicker than any words he could rely on finding run smart young benjamin run for the boats and call out oars run boy you've no time to lose and as the father dashes down the steps he spoke of, as the ladder, the son runs for all he is worth to carry the alarm to the shore. He shouts, Oars! 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 as he was told. But it is not needed, for his thought of bringing up the hat has done his work already for him. The coastguard, though the pier itself hid the two immersions from him, is quick of apprehension and ready with his glass, and has seen the boy's return from below, and at the same time heard not his words but the terror in them and by some mysterious agency has sent a flying word along the beach that has brought a population out to help. A bad time of the tide to get a boat off, Sharp, and a long shelving run of sandy shingle before we reach the sea, for all the boats are on the upper strand of the beach above the last high-water mark, and the flow of the tide is scarcely an hour old. There is a short, squat cobble, flat-bottomed and of intolerable weight, down near the waters, and its owner makes for it. Another man drives him out seawards, against the constant lift of breaking waves, large enough to be troublesome, small enough to be numerous. They give no chance to the second man to leap in the boat, so deep has he to go, pushing on until the pads are out and the boat controlled. But he has barely time to feel the underdraw of the recoiling wave, when the straight scour of a keel comes down along the sand and pebbles. The Ellen Jane, St. Simmons, half-pushed, half-borne, by a crew three minutes have extemporised. You two in the bows, and you two astern, and the spontaneous natural leader, the man the emergency makes at the tiller ropes, and Ellen Jane is off, well drenched at the outset. An oar swings round high in the air, not to knock one of you two astern into the water, and then give way, and then the short, quick rhythm of the stroke, and four men at their utmost stress, each knowing... Life and death may hang upon the greatness of his effort. The cobble is soon outshot, but its owner will not give in. He bears away from the course of the boat that has passed him to seek their common object where the tide-drift may have swept it, beyond some light craft at their moorings which would have hidden it for a while. He has the right of it this time, for as he passes, straining at his sculls under the stern of a pleasure-yacht at anchor, his eye is caught by a black spot rising on a wave, and he makes for it not too fast at the last, though, but cautiously, so as to grab the man with the life-belt, and hold him firm till help shall come to get him on board. He might easily have overshot him, but he has him now, and the fore-oar sights him as she swings round between the last moored boat and the pier, and comes apace the quicker for the tide. "'What is it you say, master? What do ye make it out, the gentleman says, Peter?' For Fenwick, hauled on board the cobble with the help of a man from the other boat, who returns to his oar, is alive and conscious, but not much more. A brandy-flask comes from somewhere in the steerage, where a mop and a tin pot and a boat-hook live, and its effect is good. The half-drowned man becomes articulate enough to justify the report. "'It's his daughter he's asking for. Overboard, too.' And then the man who spoke first says, "'You be easy in your mind, master, we'll find her.' bear away a bit and lie to tom tom is the man on the cobble and he does as he is bidden he ships his sculls and drifts watching round on all sides for what might be just afloat near the surface the fore oar remains and the eyes of her crew are straining hard to catch a sight of anything that is not mere lift and ripple of a wave then more boats one after another and more and the gathering crowd that lines the shore sees them scatter and lie to some way apart to watch the greater space of water. All drift, because they know that what they seek is drifting too, and that if they move they may lose their only chance, for the thing they have to find is so small, so small, and that great waste of pitiless sea is so large. It is their only chance. The crowd, always growing, moves along the beach as the flotilla of drifting boats moves slowly with the tide. They can hear the shouting from boat to boat, but catch but little of the words. They follow on with little speech among themselves, and hope dying slowly out of their hearts. Gradually towards the jetty, where the girl they are seeking sat only a few days since, beside the man whose heart the memory of yesterday is still rejoicing, the only trouble of whose unconscious soul is the thought that he and she must soon be parted, however short the term of their separation may be he will know more soon suddenly the shouting increases in the boats and excited voices break the silence on the shore it won't do to hope too much but surely all the boats are thickening to one spot no it's nothing yes it is it is something one knows what sighted above the ellen jane whose steersman catches it with a boat hook as the oars we on the beach saw suddenly drop back water slowly cautiously, and only wait for him to drag the light weight athwart the gunwale, to row for the dear life, towards the town. The scattered crowd turns, and comes back, trampling the shingle, to meet the boat as she lands, and follow what she brings to the nearest haven. End of chapter 45